You're listening to the City Lights Podcast, where we are equipping you to exalt Jesus and extend the kingdom of heaven right where you are. Thanks for joining us. I invite you guys to turn to Hebrews chapter 11, verse number four. Make my way to the backstage and grab this. Appreciate that, Mr. Matt. And uh, I've known Matt for probably going on three years. He's, he's like, if I had a, a poll right now and kind of raised our hand or if we did an Instagram story poll, I think we'd have upwards of 70 percent potentially um, have met the Cochrans and maybe even have met them. That was the, their first meeting here, their, their wonderful first face and um, just a wonderful place of friendship and hospitality. I'm so thankful for them. But we're in uh, Hebrews chapter 11 and we're in a series this summer um, that is focused on faith. The series is called One Faith. Turn to your neighbor and say, One Faith. I love doing that. I love saying that. Um, faith is found at the dinner table before it's found at church. Faith is a, faith is a, a personal thing. It's, it's really not a thinking theological thing as much as it is something, a belief system that, that, we, that we carry just as a human being. It's, it's, it's not a religious or a church thing. It's a human thing. It's a what do you do with the things that you don't know thing. It's a, it's a thing that you catch. Like I was the other day, uh, watching one of the NBA playoff games, and I'm like probably getting more upset than I should be at the television screen at that given moment about a call that a referee made. And I said something like, that's so dumb, and James Harden's ruining the game. If you guys watch basketball, you know what that is. If not, he just, the, the ref called a, a flimsy foul. And, and, and you guys know what this is like, right? Parents, like when you say something, you make an assertion about what you believe to be true, it's really quick how fast kids will pick up what you believe to be true and just repeat directly after you and mimic you. Oh, that James Harden, he's such a jerk, blah, 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 blah. You see how, how quickly and how deeply and how uh, prolifically kids and, and, and humans and people gather their beliefs and their assumptions. You, you know, we have faith. We don't have to go to church to have faith. We rode to, to the church today in a car like we had faith in the Ford, so to speak. We have faith in the Constitution of the United States, that in November, we're all going to, you know, some of us will, will put in a vote in a ballot box. And we believe that if we cast our vote and the candidate that gets picked, if we like them or not, we believe and have faith in what? The Constitution that sooner or later, the candidate that we want will, will get voted and elected. And the things that we desire will, will get voted in, even if the things that we voted for this cycle didn't actually happen. We have faith in the Constitution. Faith isn't just a theological term. It's not just a religion or a denomination to check off on the box on citizenship. Faith is a human thing that is happening continually. And our series this morning is called One Faith. It comes out of Ephesians 4, verse 4, which will be on the screen. Paul asserts this to the early church in Ephesus. He says, brothers, sisters, children, old, young, faith. There is one faith. There is only one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the hope that belongs to you. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father over us all, who is over all and through all and in all. He writes this letter with great trepidation. He desires for the church to not lose their first faith. There's many counterfeit, superstitious, wannabe faiths that would that would make their way into this early church. And, and Paul, as an apostle, as the father of the early church, wants to make sure that we're not just falling for any faith or every faith or different faiths on different times and different circumstances, but we would, we would become captivated by the one faith that brings peace and pleasure with God. He says, don't lose sight of your faith. There's faiths that will try and sell you salvation. 
you would pay a condolence, then your family member would be in heaven. There's faith that if you invest and sow into a minister, then you would get healed. If you would just believe it enough. There's a superstitious faith. It's not just outside the church. It's inside the church. It's all through life and all through history. Faith is not an optional sport on the buffet of life. We have to make decisions about what we believe when we don't know what's really there. And Paul says there's only one answer to that question. His name is Jesus. Don't lose sight of the one faith. And faith is a gift. Faith is not the, the, the summation or the, the theological prowess. Faith is accessible to children. Moses isn't special, is what we're learning. I want to throw the names up on the board here so you guys can get a, a map and a grid for what we're studying, but the names that you'll see from Hebrews 11 that we're looking at, seven different weeks, seven different people's testimonies of faith, these people have the same chromosome numbers as us. They have the same lungs and hearts. They're made up of, of dust, just like us, the scripture would say, breathed with life with the pneuma, the spirit of God. But they're not any different from us. It's just that the scripture says they're commended by simple faith. And their faith is the same faith that we have today. You're here for a reason. I'm here for a reason. We're all in this room in part because of our our mutual faith, our decision to be here, and how big or tested that faith is, we are here. And so is the faith of, as Scripture would say, the great cloud of witnesses is a faith that is a baton that we hold in this room today. That is their faith. Billy Graham's faith isn't different from our faith. He's not made of anything different from us. He, he received a gift which is, as the scriptures would say, that faith comes by hearing and hearing is the will, by the will of God, that he just simply had ears to hear and he simply, when hearing the word of God, like the wise man who built his house on the rock, heard the word of God and responded in obedience one step at a time. And that's what makes a hall of faith. That's what makes a pillar of faith. That's what makes a hero of faith. The people, the aunts and uncles, the Aunt Carols and the Uncle Uncle Peters and the Mimas and the Pawpaws and the people that have gone before you that you have admired, your youth pastors and your, and your pastors and, and your missionaries that you support that inspire you, that's not a different kind of faith. That's your faith. That's what God can do in your life. That's what God wants to do in your life. That's what he's prophesying on the board is that this baton doesn't just stop mid-race. It wants to go to the finish line and the baton is in our hands today. That's the faith that that we carry, and he doesn't run reruns. He's not going to split the Red Sea again. We want to know what it would look like if we were full of faith, if we were full of pure faith and true faith, relational faith, as we talked about last week, responsible faith, faith that's rewarded with something so much more precious than job promotion and real estate, but peace and pleasure with God. That's the kind of faith that we're hungry for this morning. This is our verse today. Hebrews 4, verse 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. Does it catch you off guard that this, this guy who has four verses in the Old Testament, who just seems like his only accomplishment in life was to make an offering and then, and then get murdered by his brother, that it says the very Halls of heaven still remember his name. God commended him by accepting his gifts and through faith, though he dies, he still speaks. 
that that faith, I mean, I understand when Moses split the sea and when Joseph was promoted to be Pharaoh and forgave his family, bringing in a time of prosperity for Israel, but a guy that was just in a garden and gave a first fruit offering to the Lord was recognized and still speaks out today. What is it about faith that so speaks to God? What is it about faith that moves God? What is it about that type of a true faith that pleases God? My third son, I introduced him earlier, Alec. He's our resident introvert. He's the best of me and Kyra combined. He has a little workshop in the back of our house. It's his bedroom. And he has about 5,000 Lego pieces that are in a box that he, he treasures. You know, your kids, they all have a treasure. Rocks, bottle caps, Lego pieces. And he treasures these Legos. And, and even on Christmas morning, you know, at any given time, you could come over and say, where's, where's Alec? And if you don't know where he is, he's probably in his room in like the little workshop. And he's just putting Legos together. He's just fascinated by it. And he's been drawing, and I mean, that's something that me and him have been doing. I forgot to take the picture, but he just, he makes the cutest little Lego Batmans. That's the thing now. It's not just normal Batman. They're these small, cubicle-looking toys that, like, we're drawing. That's how much pop culture has, has grown, is that we have Batman, but then we have toys of Batman, then we have Legos of Batman, then we have movies about Lego Batman, and now we do Legos of Batman, and we draw the Legos. And... It's like, our, it's like me and Alex's stories converge there because I, I, I grew up just watching something about Marvel comics. Even more than the movies, they could take you somewhere else. They can draw pictures and create landscapes that you can't do in regular films. It's just this kind of awesome thing that, 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 that drawing can do as a young boy. And I, I would go off in my little workshop. I had a blue Fisher-Price table. It was blue with tan legs and a tan top and... I would just draw and draw and draw, and I was a perfectionist. I would maybe only draw one every three days. I would just doodle, 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 and erase it and make sure that it was right. But mom said that every picture was a masterpiece. And above that table, I have a picture in my house from the 90s. It was just covered. Like, the place that, you, you know, like most moms probably would just want to put a Pottery Barn picture up there wouldn't allow you. I mean, it was the front and center. When you walked in, she wanted her son, her friends to know that her son was a Picasso in the making. And it was pictures of Robin and Batman and Catwoman and Monster Face Man where the heads were too big for the bodies and the bodies were too big for the heads. And, and one day my mom said, you're really great at art. You should go and sell your pictures. And she got me on that because if there's anything I love drawing more than drawing, it was buying toys. And so she was like, you should go outside. And like the kids usually do with lemonade, you should go and sell your pictures. So I went downstairs and I made a poster and I said, pictures for sale, 15 or 25 cents. And maybe it was the favor of God, maybe it was my calling, I don't know what it was, but it was car after car after car dropping quarters and dollars. And you know when you suggest 25 cents, they're not just going to pay you 25 cents, people are just <coughs> giving me lottery tickets, and no, I'm just kidding, they're not doing that. But they're giving larger amounts of money. I walked out, it's pretty good, in 1992 or whenever that was, with like $21 for three hours of artwork. I was just out there selling pictures, just slinging stuff. Police officers were stopping by, putting money in the jar. It was awesome. And it was a big moment for me to, to be accepted, you know, to like, it's one thing if your mom hangs up your pictures, it's another thing for a, a total stranger to like recognize a gift or a talent in you. It's one thing to like shoot a thousand free throws in the driveway, it's another thing to like have the game on the line and have everybody watching and go through the net. It's one thing to like sort of mess around on the guitar, it's another thing to play Dave Matthews, the Stone acoustic rendition at the Clay High School talent show in 2002, not that I know anything about that. It's different between playing for somebody that has to love you and playing for somebody that doesn't. 
And that's why we remember moments when we are complimented and criticized in the public eye, right? When I was at the King and I, and I was doing push-ups before my, my singing solo, and I had because I had to have no shirt on and MC hammer pants the whole time. I'm in the middle of a high G. Couldn't even sing it for you. It was the highest note you've ever heard. I'm singing with a diva. Tina Turner's over here singing with me. Maggie was her name. So I'm down on one knee, and I'm singing. Nobody told me. Everybody rushed out on the stage. It happened in a flash. These curtains that weigh probably 5,000 pounds, I'm over-exaggerating now, swept across my back. It had started raining, and the, and the curtain got called. It closed on top of me. I stood up and recognized that all the other people were behind the curtain. I was in front of it, and the spotlight hit me in front of 4,000 people, and I was like, ah! and ran off. We remember the successes and failures in public because we desperately want people to receive our offerings. Our life, in a sense, like Cain and Abel, is an offering. It's a contribution. It's a note to be sung. It's a line in a poem. We want to have a gift to give. We want to bring something. It's like Christmas. You don't want to come empty-handed. And in life, we desperately want to bring something that matters. People don't work for money. You know that statistically. They work because they get a sense that my gift and my contribution matters. And that's why it hurts so hard when the sale doesn't go through. And when the boss gives you nine things that are good and then one thing to work on. That's why it sticks with you when the first date doesn't turn into the second date, when you turn in your portfolio or go for the job interview and it doesn't turn out right. Because something deep inside of us isn't just offering a contribution, but it's offering ourself. It's myself that I'm putting on that paper that I'm selling. It's myself that I'm singing into that song. It's, it's, it's my blood, sweat, and tears. And so Cain, Cain and Abel, they come from this lineage. It starts in Genesis chapter 4, and we'll get a little background here. It says, Adam made love to his wife Eve, their parents, the first, the first humans created on on the sixth day, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And she said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Adam and Eve, obviously a renowned story, uh, invited sin into the world by way of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God had warned him not to eat of. And as they did, their eyes were opened and they become aware of their sin and their shame and they hid and they ran from God. And... And in so doing, God, God found them in the garden. And although they had covered themselves with homemade fig leaves to cover their shame and cover their sin, God clothed them in that moment in Genesis 3, verse 15, with animal skins and a promise that, that they would be covered by him. And there's a promise in Genesis 3:15 that says, from your offspring will come a man that will have enmity with the snake, but in the end of time, that man will step on the serpent's head and bruise his head and prophetically speak into it, end the era of sin and end the era of brokenness and end the era of shame forever through your line. And so Eve had faith because Eve named her first son Cain, which means spearhead. She says, with the help of the Lord, I have had a man. And almost within that statement, it's almost a hope or a faith that maybe this is the man that Jesus was talking about, that God was talking about in the garden, the promised one, the one that would bring forth 
a healing and a restoration and a redemption to the thing. And he says, with the help of the Lord, I've done it. In the first generation, we've brought forth the man. But as we can see in verse two, later she gave birth to Abel. Abel literally means vapor, whisper, vanity. It seems that something about Cain from age one or two or three or however long the birthright was between the first and the second child, that, that Cain proved that he was not that man. And the second man was named Abel. And it's so easy to forget. It's hard to remember and it's easy to forget the message of grace. It's, it's easy to forget that I didn't make my own way, that I didn't make fig leaves that did the service that I need, that I needed God to come search me and seek me and give me, give me animal skins. It's easy to forget. And so you can see that the nature of sin nature kind of wants to expedite the promise faster than it wants to get here. And it over-exaggerates the significance of the human offering with the help of the Lord. All I needed was a little help and I could give birth to a son that would bring redemption. It says in verse two, now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. And in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. This story always brings about a bit of a, of a discomfort, doesn't it? A sense of favoritism, which we hear in Romans 2, that God doesn't play, play favorites. But it seems like you've got a farmer and you've got a flock herder and the natural offering of the farmer isn't good enough, but what else would you expect from the offering of a farmer but to give the fruit of his farm? I mean, what else would you expect of Cain? And it seems that there's this favoritism that goes on. But then we look forward into Hebrews 11 and we realize that it was the nature of the offering of faith that pleased God. It was the substance of the offering, but it was also the how of the offering, how the heart, the meaning, the intent of, of Abel is what made it pure and righteous before the Lord. And we also look at verses like Romans, which this is one that seems to be reemergent in our series continually about faith, is that faith, by definition, is hearing God and obeying it. Faith comes by hearing. Faith can't happen on its own. Faith isn't a guess. Faith, faith isn't putting money on red. It's not Indiana Jones making his way across the invisible path. It's not Jedi Luke Skywalker of playing the right cards and doing the right things. Faith is relational and therefore requires communication. So we don't know how he heard, but no faith comes without the word of God. If you see faith in a hero of yours, if you see faith in your uncle and yourself, if you look around, you shouldn't be able to look too far without finding the word of God because faith is relational. And relationship is communication. God spoke to Abel. We don't know how. Either through his parents or maybe through Genesis 3.15 that Abel con, you know, conceived this thing or was, had revelation on this thing or understand the nature of the, the offering. But, but Abel is able to bring an offering in 2,500 years before the fact, as a matter of fact, knows to bring a blood offering to the table. Cain's was a fruit. It didn't have blood. It came by the sweat of his brow, the toil of his work. But Abel brought an offering of blood. It took 2,500 years for the Israelites to receive that understanding. Moses went up on Mount Sinai. They had just been exiled from, from Egypt. And Moses went up to understand the, the providence of God and understand the principles of God and didn't just bring, bring down 10 commandments and just a list of do nots. There are 613 do's and prescriptions within the Levitical law. And the Israelites learned to love that law. They learned to love the Levitical law. It talked about everything from 
cleaning, cooking, husbandry, in-laws, homeless people. I mean, it talked about everything. It was, it was a letter from God that wanted to communicate everything that people would need to know to have peace and pleasure with God. And he send those, sent those things down, and the Israelites loved it. It's not like a tax law that you're really not sure if your government representative is thinking about your best benefit. There isn't, there isn't a suspicion there. It, it's the same God that provides man in the desert, the same God that split the sea, the same God that provides for us with a pillar of fire and a cloud. That's the God that is sending you these, these, these edicts, these laws, and that's what they, they learned. But throughout the theme, it's hard to read the book of Leviticus without understanding that the most important issue in the book of Leviticus is the issue of blood. There are several offerings that were prescribed. This is the the law that Abel never read but already participated in somehow by faith. There There was sin that was conscious. There was sin that was unconscious, unintentional. There was sin that had to do with money. There was sin that didn't have to do with money. There was sin that had to do with corporate stuff. There was sin that had systemic things and sin that had to do with individual things. And for each one, there was a prescription of what to do and what kind of animal and how to burn it and if you could eat it or if you couldn't eat it. But every single offering, aside from the grain offering, which technically had to do with animals anyways, all had a common theme, which is the theme of they all provided blood. And this is what Leviticus says. This is why. For the life of the creature is in the blood. The essence, the thing that gives something life, not just energy, not just just DNA, the thing that that makes it alive, the miracle of life that that as smart as we get, we can never recreate the thing outside of the miracle of of life. And it says this way that there's life in the blood. That's where where the life is. And if there's something broken, if it's killed, if there's blood spilled, then life has been taken. But if blood is within the body, then life is happening and cells are reproducing and energy and muscles are being being provided for. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. He's provided a way. He already knew. He already knew of the of the nature and the weightiness of sin. He already knew in providing the law that the law would be broken. He already knew the law wasn't enough for the Israelites to walk in harmony and peace and pleasure with God. And so he provided a way to approach him even within our deepest and darkest sins. And this is is what God speaks to us in our night of uncertainty. People are, are fickle, our emotions are fickle, and sometimes it's hard to to really know. I mean, isn't that what we're asking when we, when we stand up in front of a crowd and when we say something or do a dance or give a picture to our mom? It's, do you approve of my offering? But not just do you approve of my offering, do you approve of me? Am I accepted? Am I valued? Am I ultimately good or am I ultimately evil? Do I add or subtract from the equation? Do I give life or do I take it away? Am I worthwhile? Am I worth something? And God gives the Israelites, none of the other people group had a certainty about who God was and maybe if it rained or maybe if it didn't, that's how we would tell about the will of the Lord. But God gave a consistent offering for them to bring in the place of trepidation. If you don't know how you stand, then stand before the blood and you'll know you're accepted. There's life in the blood, and when you give blood and when you take blood from the fattened calf, the firstborn, you'll know you're accepted. 
when you're laying your head down at night and your parents don't accept you and when your kids don't accept you, when it seems like the whole world is turned upside down, you might be tempted to allow your faith to go to another God, but you can look at this blood and know that you will always be accepted at the altar of the Lord through Abel's offering and through faith. And he's only prophesying. I mean, I don't know how much Abel can see, but he has enough faith to know that this is what the word of the Lord says. I wonder if he had enough faith even to stretch beyond the 2,500 years, 1,400 years beyond that, 4,000 years into Hebrews 9.11 when the writer of Hebrews says to us, but when Christ appeared as the high priest of good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, the one where they used to do the offerings through the Levitical era, through Aaron's priesthood, not made with hands. You don't have to worry about the sinfulness of the priest when you caught the priest doing something that the priest wasn't supposed to do, or you don't have to worry about, you know, the frailty of life or the ups and downs of the economy. Look to a deeper place, a higher place, a more perfect tent. This is what the writer of Hebrews would say beyond the cross. And this is the holy place that is not, that is not constructed upon the consistency of blood of goats and calves and by the means of, of, of other animals such as this, but by Jesus Christ's blood himself, thus securing an eternal redemption. For the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offers himself with blemish, with no blemish to God, purify our conscience in that dark night of the soul? Speaks to us what the scripture says, a better word. You know, God was not born of flesh. He didn't have an earthly father. You cut his veins open. We had the, the science today. I don't know what is D. I don't know. Is he type O? I don't know what type it is. But it's not normal blood. It's, it's a lineage that isn't from a man. It's from heaven itself that flows through his veins. And the Levitical order was that you would take that heifer and you would chop off a violent scene. Chop that, that goat or that bull or that perfect ram. You would chop the head off and it, the scripture would say, you would not allow for less than the entirety of the blood to be spilled. And there's, blood, there's life in the blood. And if the blood spilled, that animal is no longer living. And it's not going back in the animal. And when Jesus was crucified on Calvary, that blood is not going back in him. It's spilled once and it's spilled forever. And there's only one verdict when we come to the altar of the Lord. I either come to him under the blood or I don't. If I come to him under the blood, he's righteous to forgive me. His blood speaks a better word. And anything that my conscience or my enemies or my circumstances would want to tell me need to answer to that blood. The blood of, of the perfect sacrifice, the perfect unblemished lamb. The Cain offering was so different. The Cain offering was based on human ingenuity and planning. Talks about in Genesis 3, one of the curses of the garden is that work would become toil. We should come home from nine to fives if we were in Genesis 1, full of life, as, as a part of blessing within the garden of the Lord. It's good to work. It's good to use your hands. It's good to make something. That's part of creation that God has made something. That's his rhythm, his ethos. But, but now, beyond the curse, there's, there's something toiling, it talks about in the Bible. There's a sweat that comes on our brow of work. From our, from our 40 hours or 50 hours or 60 hours. And there's, along with that, a sense of entitlement that can catch us, and especially like us workaholics, we can really get this. That we start not only thinking about the work that we hope is pleasing to God, but we start thinking about the work that other people don't do and then just collect on welfare. 
and it, 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 it puffs us in a way, especially, and I don't say especially as men, but potentially more, more for men is that there's this pride that comes along of, I've done well, and I've earned my lot, and I've earned my keep. Even now, it's kind of cool to have a garden, you know, it's like hipster, like I'm connecting with God and the earth, and like, I'm self-sufficient. I have more than I need. Like, I don't need the government to, to provide. I don't need something else to provide. I, I, I have more than enough, and if my neighbor would come to me in need, or if God would want an offering, I have something to give him. That's, that's the nature of, of Cain's work. And so God has this conversation with him. He says to Cain, once his, once his offering isn't accepted, Cain becomes downcast. It's actually the first mention in all of the Bible of depression. And by the rule of first, it's something to pay attention to when it comes to what does God do about this emotion. It says his face was downcast, which means his soul was downcast. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? Cain and Abel both have faith. They both believe in God. But the offering of Cain is different than the offering of Abel. And and God doesn't play favorites. He's offering the same invitation to bring the blood sacrifice by faith. We assume it was either spoken or received by the Spirit that Cain and Abel both were privy to the same information. But Cain chose a different way, a way of of self-provision. There's something... He didn't hear, like when Abel killed his offering, the bone snapped. There was a squeal. That animal represented something. It spoke a word to Abel that Cain never had to hear. And Cain, and God is differentiating between the two things. You get a sense that when blood is spilled, something is wrong. Something has has not happened the right way. Something has been alienated here. And something about that animal shows me that that should have been me in a substitutionary system. And he says, Because you have come before me with your own works, with the sweat of your own brow. He says, because you didn't do what is right. He says, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now, Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. There's no such thing as ethics separated from theology. What you think of when you think of God tells you everything you need to think about yourself, is what A.W. Tozer says. The seed of sin was already in Cain at the offering. What Cain brought to the offering, his heart, his how and his what, what he did in that moment of offering, told God all he needed to know about the conversation, about the murder that was about to happen. Because the seed of independence, although hardworking and American and self-dependent and all these things, the seed of I don't need God is the only seed you need to become a murderer or worse. Jesus says that, Anytime we pull in the parking lot to Lowe's and curse a brother because they stole our parking spot, we have the spirit of Cain on us. That is murder, is what Jesus would say. And we have more government and more social collective security, and I don't want to look stupid, I don't want to end up on the news because of social media, but I wonder how we would do in a garden when nobody would see us and we didn't have faith that God would know what we would do to people that we were angry at or had retribution for. Cain's no different from us. And what the Bible is saying here is, is it's one chapter. I mean, wouldn't it take a little bit of time for the head of steam 
you know, to build up that one person would, would, would do a verbal insult, would lead to a physical altercation, would then lead to a murder. I mean, we go zero to 60 on this thing. There's no bullies in here. There's no, there's no like, I grew up in an abusive environment or my, my, my mother abused me or my father was an alcoholic. No, he, 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 has, he has no other systemic environment that he's stepping into except for the place of sin in his heart. And God knew from his offering, he could tell from the offering it's the offering that brings the action. It's the offering that, that the way we approach God, the way we think about God, as A.W. Tozer says, that tells us everything we need to know about what we're doing for the rest of our day and our week and our month and our year. So a simple question today as we approach God. Do we approach God with the Cain offering or do we approach God with faith in the, in the offering of Abel? You know, I trash night is tonight and sometimes I remember, sometimes I forget. It's a love language for Kyra. If the doors aren't locked and the lights are on and the garage is open, if the trash is not out, I didn't do a good job. And the trash night is a getting to be a bigger and bigger night in our house because we have so many kids and there's tons and tons of trash. And so hopefully I'll remember, Matt, if I don't, Matt will remind me to take the trash out tonight and wheel it out. But the thing about trash is that we know when to take it out, we know where to take it, but we very seldom go into it. And sometimes I think we confess sin this way. I think we, we come before the Lord in the offering of Abel, much like the way we take out the trash. We confess the issue of sin, that we're sinners, but we don't do 1 John 1, 8, which is to confess sin. And in so doing, there's a relativism that comes about where how many people, you know, we do the whole thing. How many people in this room are perfect? Nobody raised their hand. How many people have sinned? Everybody raised their hand. What's the issue of sin that you're dealing with in your life right now? And what are you confessing to the Lord? And what are you bringing to the Lord? Because here's the thing. Cain can bring, we can bring an offering of fruit and vegetable if we believe he's the creator God, if he's the protector God, if he's the, you know, the, the provider God. But what Abel brings that Cain doesn't bring is he understands he's the savior God. And the way we approach him says everything. The offering says everything about our actions, the heart and the how and what we bring to that offering is imperatively important. And, and I, don't, I don't know, the, the offering of Cain and the offering of Abel is not expired. We offer these offerings continually. We all have offerings from Cain and we all have offerings from Abel. And when we approach God, there's power, there's life, there's acceptance that is missing when we don't choose to bring the sin before him. There is a rationalism. There is a way that we can tell the story that can change the way I perceive I'm a workaholic versus I'm just a hard worker. Or I don't have a fear of man, I'm just, I'm just shy. Or I, you know, like I, I don't have an, an anger issue, I'm just frustrated and this is the environment or the season that I'm in. There's this way that we can kind of confess the general concept of sin without coming to him and having the conversation. And here's what's so great about the blood of Jesus is that it holds you harder and firmer than you could ever hang on to Jesus. Jesus is hanging on to you more than you're hanging on to him. And so when we take confessed sin and not just, you know, the idea of sin before the Lord and to others as it talks about in 1 John and James, and we say, Lord, I'm going to call it like it is. That's lust. I'm not just a sinner saved by grace. Brother, I'm a sinner saved by grace. No, I'm struggling with lust right now. And that doesn't come from you. And I want to talk about it. 
when it's all about the big faith moment and being excited about God and his character and and those things can perpetuate a movement. But there's a work that God wants to do in us, I believe, an offering that we need to bring to say, I want to talk about this. And you know what's so great? You know what he always says? I love you. And you know what that does to you? It puts your walls down and you say, you know what? I feel lonely right now. Now the Lord, the blood is starting to do work. It's not just a magic potion. It's not just saying, oh, I claimed it in the name of Jesus and so now I'm whole and healed. He wants to do work in that. He wants to do an exchange. He wants to do a two-way dialogue. And then he says, well, I love you. And then you can start to actually call out the things and bring them into the light and realize those don't belong to you and they aren't yours and it's part of the old man, it's part of the flesh and you don't need to hang on to them anymore and you get to put them before him. And, and it's First John, it talks about as you confess, then you can step into the light. He who says he doesn't have a sin is a liar, but he who, who says he has sin can actually bring them before the light and walk into the light and fellowship with God and others. And you say, Lord, I'm prideful. There's things in my life, I'm, peep, I, I'm lonely for a reason. And I want to, I want to let this go. You know there's another way to take out the trash? I go to the Anderson Ridge dump. Isn't that fun, going to the dump? You haul that couch out there. The couch is from 2006. There's like chewy bar wrappers in there, and you get your buddy, and you go and lift it, and you put it in there. And the great thing about it is you just feel like purged out. You know what I mean? Like you're making space for the new day. And it took, it took a lot. Like you love that couch and there's ways to kind of like rationalize it. Like, ah, oh, maybe I'll just hang on to it for one more year. I mean, it saves money. And, you know, this is what my grandma gave me. I couldn't get rid of this. And, oh, these are the first shoes. No, but these are the second shoes. And these are the third shoes. And these are the fourth shoes. And then you just have that purge moment where you just let go. And you get to bring that thing to the dump and you just toss that thing over and you're like, that thing is gone. I'm ready for something new. You know what happens at the altar? The altar is good news. The, the, the cross is not a place of sorrow. It's a place of joy. And we know we're not doing it right when we end up with regret because it says that godly sorrow never leads you to regret. Godly sorrow leads you to joy and repentance. You have to bring the brokenness. You have to bring the sorrow, but all sorrow that's brought before the blood, if you believe it speaks what it says that it speaks, you can bring that thing forward with healthy confidence, knowing he's in love with you and we can actually get to the business of coming into the light. There's the idea of sinfulness and the idea of righteousness, and then there's actual sin, there's actual righteousness. Sometimes I don't think we have the words that we need for faith, specific words, because we don't move to him in specific repentance. And the, the topics that he wants to talk about, we're skirting them and talking about every other issue except for the elephant in the room. This is the word of the day. The blood of the Lord speaks a, a better word than the blood of Abel. It speaks a louder word, and it speaks a confident word. And as we come before him, we know there's nothing that we can bring before him that would ever change how he feels about us. So we have an option to either hold on with him with one hand and hold on to our sin with another, or we bring the sin into the light and we actually check him on this and actually check the promise, your blood is louder than my sin. And, you're, and I'm worth more to you because of your blood. These are the words that were spoken to Jesus and the words that are spoken to you. You in the blood of Jesus in Christ are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. And it's funny how confidence can allow a kid to grow. When a kid is growing up in your house and he has no confidence and no sense of where his next meal is coming from, he's not allowed to dream and he's not allowed to grow. But in a household of faith and love and encouragement, when that kid is secure and knows that his mom and his dad loves him, he can bring that dad and mom anything. And there's nothing that can separate that father from that child and then real growth can happen.
This is the Father that we have. This is the Jesus that we have. This is the blood that we can come under so we can actually bring forth the things that we are dealing with and call sin a sin so we can have righteousness that's real and true righteousness. I want to invite you guys to stand as I pray for us in close, and we're going to respond in worship. Your blood, even saying the name of Jesus and the blood of Jesus, it's, it's so powerful. It leaps off the page. I'm just confessing right now, reading my notes this morning, there's nothing louder on my page right now than what Leviticus and Hebrews has to say about the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus speaks a better word. The blood of Jesus has life and no other place has it. The blood of Jesus is enough. The blood of Jesus is strong. The blood of Jesus doesn't change. The, the blood of Jesus has power. And we, have, we cannot afford to come before you or come before any other man that's going to fall away other than under the blood of Jesus. As the, as the, as the Israelites did in the, in the Passover, as they painted over their doorways, we paint the blood of Jesus over our life. We paint the blood of Jesus over our children and children's children. We paint the blood of Jesus over our, our prayers and our offerings and our, and our worship even now. And we trust in the blood of Jesus. We decide, and it is a decision to have faith, to rebuke the, the spirit and the offering of Cain, which is a hidden spirit of murder that pulls at us and our insecurities and suggests that if we were to work a little bit harder and say it a little bit nicer, that maybe we would be worth something. We lay it all down and we say, no, we choose a higher word. We choose to be find our worth in the blood of Jesus. I thank you for the pleasure that falls on this place right now because of your blood, Jesus. You're so attracted to us in this place because of the blood of Jesus. There's so much life and repentance that can happen because of that intimacy we experience with you. It's because your blood and only in the blood that we can actually have the life that we long for. We proclaim in this hour and in this time the blood of Jesus and only the blood of Jesus is where we find life. We thank you for the offering. We come before you now with our offering that depends on your blood and not our work. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please let us know by leaving feedback on our iTunes podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc. Thanks for exalting Jesus with us.